think for autonomy to be really powerful for teams, the organization has to be supportive of the risks that the product takes. I think many times stakeholders who have great feature ideas, right? In an organization where risk is not tolerated, product managers are likely to take these features and, and go with them just because they're dictated by, by their seniors. But when risk is tolerated, you're much more likely to say, okay, I will explore that, but ultimately I'm just going to have a very structured open discovery process and understand, is this really what my users need right now? Or would my product actually have a much bigger impact if I uh, focused on, on something else? Welcome to Quantum Black Voices, a series of interviews with the talented and diverse people building products to capture the transformative power of advanced analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Today, we're talking to Virginia Alexva, one of our product managers within Quantum Black Labs. Virginia has an impressive background in both finance and product development, and talks us through the learnings she gleaned from her experiences before joining Quantum Black. We then go on to talk about Bricks, the product Virginia is building to scale our capabilities internally, why it's also super relevant to other organizations attempting to scale the impact of analytics also. Finally, we talk about the importance of autonomy when building products and how our stakeholders within QB Labs have created an environment that encourages autonomy, discovery, and experimentation. To learn more about Quantum Black and McKinsey Company, head to www.quantumblack.com. Enjoy the episode. So, hello. Would, hello. <laughs> okay. Why don't we start with the simplest question? Can you introduce yourself and your role at Quantum Black? My name is Virginia Alexiva, and I'm a product manager uh, at Quantum Black Labs. I joined a little bit less than a year ago, and I product manage an application called Bricks. The application is focused on sharing technical analytics assets across across the firm, and we, we call it open source within the company. Amazing. Before we dive into BRICS and its uh, purpose within McKinsey and Quantum Black and also the, the value of it to our clients, can you tell us a little bit about your background? So what did you do before Quantum Black? I know, I know you've worked at a few places, but it'd be fantastic to hear some of the highlights. Sure. So I've actually worked at, the, at a lot of places and I, I spent... A, I think at this point, half of my career in finance and half of my career in uh, in software slash product. I started in finance, more specifically in M&A. The one thing that you learn even during your first year is how to behave in front of very senior people because you're very much thrown straight away into situations where you have to talk to CEOs of uh, of big corporations, so especially at, uh, at Lazard, which is uh, considered an independent boutique investment bank, you're very much a small team. So you talk to all the senior uh, stakeholders from day one. I think this was very instrumental for me uh, going forward, just so that I can actually talk to a lot of senior folk and important stakeholders without uh, without any, any concern uh, or anything like that. Because talking to senior stakeholders is scary, right? What would your tips be to people joining joining a new industry or maybe not necessarily finance or any other industry? What, what, what did you learn about communicating with senior stakeholders that you could pass on to the next generation? Maybe the most important thing to remember is that they're just humans. So there's usually nothing to be, to be scared. They'll know you're just starting. 
And even if you make mistakes, they will be okay with that. As long as you own your mistakes and you're very open, candid, hardworking uh, and sincere, I think people would, would be completely fine with whatever you do. That's great advice. Where did you head next? Then, then I actually moved to, to Goldman Sachs where I, was, uh, where I was a trader. Okay. What does a trader do? Most people would say buy and sell stocks. <laughs> That's okay. not what I was doing. <laughs> okay. So I, I had actually uh, I had actually two jobs which were very similar, but somehow somehow different. I think for most people it would sound like exactly the same job, but ultimately I was a structured products trader. Okay. So basically selling selling the products is the, is is obviously the main thing, but that's that's kind of the initial step. Then the real focus is uh, is actually pricing before you sell them. It's pricing them and then risk managing them. Uh, especially the stuff that I was doing were incredibly bespoke, which meant that I had to build my uh, my infrastructure, which is probably a, quite a term for <laughs> what I was building at the time. Okay. Um, to be able to actually price these very quickly, to be able to manage them and understand what are the risks that I'm getting, given it's it's something that you would not trade on the on the market. Right. Okay. And what, so, what did you take away from your role as a trader? What, 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 what so did my, you learn there? Yeah, so my, so, my, so my role was, in essence, very much a, basically a new business starter. And, and when, I, when I tell people I was a trader, then they obviously think about buying and selling stocks. But it was very much learning how to, how to set up something from scratch, how to make it efficient enough and worth it so that, that the money you make are a lot more than the resources that you spend. Okay. On it, and at the same time, how do you how do you market? How do you understand what uh, what people actually need? Because structuring means you, by definition, you create something that maybe is not out there. So you need to understand what people are interested in. Are oh, they yeah. interested in what we used to say thematic indices? So, for example, low volatility products, or uh, let's say cloud services indices, things like that. All of that is very very much client driven. I think this was probably my first touch point with uh, with the fact that in order to create something that's successful you need to understand what your clients need and then offer them something above and beyond wow that's so that they come back (laughs) (laughs) got you okay and then after corporate finance after goldman sachs where next okay so i started in corporate finance then i moved to trading uh which is more as we call it securities um securities trading and after that i briefly joined hedge fund which was the sort of thing that in finance is equivalent to startups in the software world. It's a uh, very high risk. Most of ha- most of the hedge funds uh, stay alive for for about two years. And after after the hedge fund, I I decided that I enjoyed much more the building of the business rather than the market fluctuations themselves. Okay. So I decided to take a to take a step back and interview with a lot of different companies. What were you looking for? I kind of wanted to build my own business. Okay. Uh, but I felt I was not ready yet. Okay. Because I always had the the support and the infrastructure of a very big company. Yeah. And for me as well, to be able to build your own business, you need to be really convinced that your idea is the right idea yeah. in your vision. Because just by by definition, you're going to have so many obstacles. Basically, if you're not if you're not into the the belief that this is the thing that's going to work. You're just gonna drop it. Conviction. Yeah, exactly. You have to have conviction. Okay. Okay. So then I was trying to figure out where would I be able to to learn that the most, while at the same time, kind of use my my skills from from finance, 
And the interesting thing that came up, it was one of the engineers at Goldman had joined Palantir and he, he was setting up a startup, which was funded by Palantir and Credit Suisse. And it was focused on trading surveillance. So <laughs> sounds very <laughs> scary. Yeah, trading surveillance definitely does sound scary. I'm sure it wasn't, but why don't, you, why don't you tell us what they were trying to do? So basically what we were trying to do was use machine learning and big data to be able to identify rogue traders. Oh, right. Okay. I mean, this sounds like a Jason Bourne movie. Exactly. Yeah, go, go on. <laughs> sounds very cool. So basically there are a lot of, um, if you look at the previous cases, there are a lot of behavioral points which are very similar between the different cases. And if you actually had all the data around, um, let's say when the person was coming to work. So sometimes they were coming, they were going out at 7 p.m., then coming back at 10 p.m. or the way they were booking their trades, uh, maybe a little bit, a uh, little bit later after everyone else is is already gone, or they would book a couple of small ones just to test if everyone is going to catch if something's wrong. There were a lot of behavioral things that you could catch that would show you that something big might happen before that big thing actually happened. Wow. Okay. So, so this was a, a really interesting project and a very difficult one because no one, no one has really solved this yet, okay. uh, to be perfectly honest. One of the really important things that, that I learned uh, while there was that vision is one of the most important things when you're trying to do something, something new. You might have a, an A-team, but if you, if you don't communicate that vision well enough, then people might understand it in, in very different ways. And the same goes with stakeholders. You need to bring your stakeholders very early on and be very explicit and clear and sincere about what you're trying to do and what you're, what you're trying to achieve and what are potentially some of the traps that uh, you can fall in. So a, a vision is super important when you have a new idea to keep the team on track and focused on a singular goal because there might be lots of requirements that might throw them off that track. Yes or no? I think the most I think the most important thing is I think having a vision is as important as being able to communicate that vision very well. Okay, elaborate on that. You can have a vision which people vaguely understand, but everyone might understand in a very different way once you go one level deeper. So I think that it's really important to be able to actually explain that in enough in enough detail so that both your team and stakeholders understand the exact direction in which you're going um, so that they don't pull you in all of the different directions as it always happens because of all the urgent uh, needs and features that need to be built. Got you. That's a fantastic learning. So after attempting to identify rogue traders with machine learning, what did you do next? After the trading uh, surveillance, James Bond movie, as you were saying, I moved to the US with uh, with my family and it was kind of the perfect time to move to the US because of the startup boom at the time. And I was lucky enough to to live, uh, I think, 15 minutes walking from one of the really famous startups at the time, which was Jet.com. Jet.com was bought by Walmart, I think, after merely two years or something like that for, for $3 billion. So kind of a interesting one to join. And, and as, I, as I mentioned before as well, like I always seem to be attracted by smaller by smaller companies that are owned by bigger companies where you can have the autonomy, but then you have the big backbone of the of the brand company. Okay. The most important thing of Jet.com was their pricing algorithm and the gamification of shopping. And I joined the pricing team. 
which was uh, which was really fun. It was it was incredibly smart people, and we had a quite a unique challenge to make sure that we integrate actually Walmart and Jet System on, on the pricing side. And obviously, this was happening on the supply side as well. And figure out how do we deal with pricing in a in an omnichannel world. So that means you have five thousand stores in the US, and every single store has a different has basically different economic condition because it's in a different state. Uh, but then you have one online price. So how do you ensure that people don't um, get annoyed when Diet Coke is maybe forty cents in? online and then if you go to the store it's one dollar i might have <laughs> i might be giving them totally wrong prices here but i get where you're going how, how do you, but how do you make sure they're not upset so first is by doing a lot of uh, a lot of research you need to understand what what people are expecting how much they're willing to pay for the for the fact that they will be ordering something to their home do they want to pay for it actually or do they expect to get it cheaper because you don't have to store all these items. There are a lot of a lot of things psychologically that go into humans' mind, especially around pricing. It's a pricing problem, but people incorporate everything into price, including how long you're gonna take to take basically to get the product, how much choice you have, etc. 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 Okay. Wow. This sounds like a tricky problem to solve at scale. So pricing is, is is rather is rather complex, as I mentioned. You have generally the fact that you need to you need to ensure you know the prices of all your competitors, and there are a lot of rules that you can potentially use to price. But ultimately, this is not very scalable. So this was my second introduction to to machine learning, where in order to scale, we we had to use uh, we had to use models. There are a multitude of problems where machine learning is really the right answer. Otherwise, you have thousands and thousands of rules, and you cannot scale running a, a massive e-commerce business like that. I suspect this experience is what piqued your interest in machine learning. So to be honest, my interest in machine learning was even before I left Goldman. And and I think maybe the what I learned at Jet more was how do you actually work with applying machine learning at scale in real time when you don't really know what's the best algorithm to use in that particular for that particular problem. It it very much requires the patience of a researcher. Uh, well, at the same time, you, you have delivery date and you need to make sure that you have a working solution within that time frame. Might not be the best. You're going to improve it later, but you need to get the research to, to a place where it is actually something that can go into production. So it's a real balance between experimentation and execution. Exactly. Got you. I know you worked at another couple of companies before joining Quantum Black, but I guess that was one of the main things that attracted you to Quantum Black was the fact that we were applying machine learning in real world situations. Okay. Exactly. I think the last company that I joined was really fun for different reasons, but ultimately I missed that connection with uh, with machine learning. What really attracted me to Quantum Black was the fact that first it was part of McKinsey. So I had that peace of mind that it's a big company. It's not... It's not a startup, but at the same time, there is an independency part of the job, especially because I was joining Quantum Black Labs, which is a very autonomous and independent body within uh, within the big 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 firm. Somewhere between 30 and 40,000, definitely, yeah. I do want to be kind of cheesy, but I would say when I made a good decision, it was actually for the people. And you could tell that at Quantum Black, everyone was really was really autonomous. Everyone had their their own passions, their own ideas about things. And they were given the space to actually build on their strengths and redevelop those strengths. 
and they're really great at communicating. So. <laughs> so autonomy, great communication, and the security of an established institution supporting us along the way. I think there are pretty good reasons. You found your way to Quantum Black, and you're now the product manager on a solution called Bricks. What was the problem that we were trying to solve with Bricks? In short, the problem really is sharing technical analytics assets. But in essence, it's a much bigger problem. And I think exacerbated further at McKinsey and Quantum Black, just because we're a very big decentralized organization. And the problem is, how do you make sure that after every project that you do, you can actually kind of save in the brain of the company all the useful analytical bits that you have created, as long as the clients always there are happy with that. And then have them as expertise so that people that are solving a similar problem in the future can actually go back, reform, potentially build, improve, reuse that knowledge. So what is BRICS? <laughs> <laughs> With BRICS, we kind of want to create our own internal open source community where everyone can feel free to come and share code as long as you're allowed to share. You have made sure that there is nothing sensitive. Anyone can comment, anyone can use, anyone can contribute back, anyone can improve. And we wanted to have that dynamic community and replicate what exists uh, out there in, ter in terms of open source, but internally within the organization, because ultimately it's, it's our IP. It's not at this stage, it's what we create in terms of production assets is not something that we can share with the rest of the world, although maybe in, uh, in some future that's possible. In short, we want Bricks to be the, the application where McKinsey technical professionals basically come to share and consume analytics assets. And I think we're we're doing quite quite well. We're quite on track to actually achieve that as we're growing uh, substantially in the last year or two. And you cannot just ask, you know, the person sitting next to you, hey, have you worked on, on something similar? Can you share your uh, expertise? We need to have a scalable way of doing that. And, and I would say, given my experience in many companies at, at at this stage, it's something that everyone suffers from. You would have the Germany office not talk to the Paris office. They would try to solve the same problem. Uh, sometimes pretty large teams as well, until you realize someone has already worked on, on the same problem, which I think is is not fun sometimes for, for people. But also just from a company perspective, why spend double the money when potentially you can just pull the resources of two different teams where one person potentially already shares what they have created, another one builds on it and pros it. And you would know that many, many companies like uh, Uber, Facebook, etc., have created feature stores, which also can be defined in a lot of different ways, but it's one way in which you can share at least the code and the results to be used by different teams, servicing different lines, but actually having to be consistent in the way they, they have coded their features, for example, or cool. the data that they use. So Bricks a repository of code and knowledge that can be reused by our teams, which I'm guessing both accelerates their projects, but also mitigates risk because they're leveraging historical experience there. Yeah, so that's a, so that's a great point. Uh, first, I would say right now it's, it's code, but we want to make sure that we include anything that relates to code. So as I mentioned, feature stores, the feature lists, um, for example, are very much something that, that comes together with, uh, with a specific pipeline or the data schema, for example, for the different layers of your pipeline. So we want to make sure that all of that information actually sits in, sits in one place. It's any analytical technical exactly. asset. Exactly. Yes. Right. Amazing. And for, for us as an organization, it means our teams aren't doing the same thing twice. Exactly. So, so I think they're not doing the same thing 
twice and hopefully that accelerates them. Second, it kind of reduces our risk because you have less assets that people are working on so they could constantly improve and ultimately care about the quality of because it's it's transparent. It's there for the whole organization to see. And you can be confident that if this is a piece of code that has been reviewed by XYZ and it has like, let's say, 85% coverage by Lint score of 10, it's something that's safe to use rather than you spending a couple of hours today to create something just because you need to do it really quick and you have no idea where to get it from apart from Stack Overflow if you're doing it for the first time. Awesome. So it's an engine for our own continual improvement at a technical layer. Yes, effectively. But as you were saying as well, though, it's not just accelerating and reducing risk. It's it just making sure that our employees are satisfied with their jobs. Because if you're within the same company, very often, okay, maybe you're not going to do the same thing uh, five times, but if you work as a consultant and that's your expertise, you're very likely going to do the same thing many times. And if you have a way to do that quickly, then you can actually focus or your mind share on something which is which is more interesting, more challenging, and ultimately more unique for for each customer, adding more value, hopefully. Yes, that's a fascinating reflection, actually, which is that it's not just accelerating it, it's it's making more time for our practitioners to focus on completely new problems. Exactly. And solutions. Right. Awesome. Why is the solution here not just a central code repository? So there are three reasons. First is discovery. Uh, second ease of consumption, and third ease of contribution. From the discovery standpoint, even if you, your whole organization is in a monorepo, which is rarely the case, it's really, really difficult to find the code that, that you're after. Comments are always of a questionable quality, and you'd often just struggle for days to figure out where something comes from. So that's around discovering. The second is ease of consumption. If... And I'm not going to say that everyone has spaghetti code, but if you have thousands and thousands of lines of code, it, it's really difficult to then again uh, pull from, from this huge repo, copy and paste, etc. So we have a very seamless way in which basically every single piece of code is run in its, in its own environment. And you can actually just download that piece of code instead of Git cloning an entire uh, repository. You also can basically just pip install it. So we kind of make it a mini library. And you don't have to worry about anything else. You know, it's really contained. The piece you're looking for is contained in that, let's say, one line of code that you're posting in your terminal. Or or you can just download a folder and just place it whatever you think is, is the right place, basically, for the code. If, for example, one pipeline is is made of a lot of modular uh, modular pipelines, then we would basically take all these dependencies Within once, when you actually want to download this component, it will download it together with all the different requirements that you need to run it um, so that everything works. So you know, if you're interested in a piece of code, you're going to download it and everything is going to work because it has been tested and, and everything has passed, which is, I think, one of the big differences with any other approach to, to sharing, which is not code. So the third thing is around is around contribution. And I've... Been, I think, both on the uh, kind of on the receiving end and clearly on the on the contributing end. But most of the time, when big organizations create a platform, uh, as they say, to share, 
people just share whatever whatever they want and they don't really think about how this can be used by by someone else which means that ultimately you end up with a kind of graveyard uh, of code which is really difficult to um, to find anything useful in while if you if you have some templates that people can use when they share and we have some really simple templates around how a structure, for example, of a ghetto pipeline should look like, how a free float uh, Python snippet should look like, a knowledge post, etc. Then people know what to expect. So they come, uh, they straightway know what to expect. Uh, they can very quickly tell whether this is something they're, they're going to want to use or not. Uh, and when they contribute, they don't spend hours trying to figure out how can, how can I make this useful? They already know what, what others expect and, Especially within our tool, if you have already written the code, and especially if you have already contributed once, it's usually like a five-minute process to to contribute, which I think is a big unblocker because most of the time people just don't have the time to help others. Awesome. Okay, so so there's obviously a lot of curation going on. I think what's interesting as well is that you touched on this earlier that an analytics use case, there's a lot of context that surrounds it. You can't just give someone a piece of code and then assume that they're going to understand the problem it was attempting to solve, the stakeholders involved, the processes that needed to change within the organization to adopt it. There's a whole plethora of different dimensions that make an analytics use case successful. And Bricks is and is currently a, a solution to communicating all of those different parts so another part of the organization can adopt the assets that have been created for that use case. Yeah, exactly. Even even on the lowest level, every single component people contribute comes with a readme file or a Jupyter notebook that exemplifies how this piece of code can actually be used. So you don't have the the traditional issue with, okay, there is a piece of code. I have no idea what this line does type thing. It's amazing. Talk to me a little bit about the process that we have leveraged to build Bricks. Because one thing I have observed as someone outside of the Bricks team is the frequency of updates and releases that you make on the Bricks team. There seems to be new features rolling out every week. And whenever someone talks to me about agile and being iterative and releasing in iterations, I always think the Bricks team are doing that really, really well. Talk, talk to me about how you make that happen on the team and, and why that's important when you're building a new product like Bricks. Uh, thank you. First of all, uh, we try to release every week. I think the really important thing is, first of all, the fact that we have set this cadence every week. This forces us to to make sure that we actually break features down to to a minimum. And we do a lot of discovery. I would say every two weeks, uh, we're actually talking to to users. And while discovery really helps you formulate the entire solution. We usually have a workshop afterwards where we discuss what we have learned from, from users as a, basically as a summary, let's say, mirror board. And we would, we would usually try to figure out what is, what is easy, what is difficult, what is the most important thing that the user needs to do first so that we can figure out whether actually this feature is worth building on or not. And this is really useful to keep us to keep us focused because we know that we have one week to build it. So oftentimes we actually break a feature down into into its components to whatever is the first most risk reducing component component of the feature, but at the same time it's not broken. It's not the it's more like a skateboard rather than you know a car with uh, two wheels type thing. Sure. 
<laughs> okay, so the frequency of releases provides you with an even stronger signal from users on whether that feature is something that they need exactly. or want or how you might change it. Okay. Fascinating. You mentioned earlier one of the, the reasons that you were attracted to Quantum Black and to QB Labs, our product building organization, was the autonomy. Can you talk a little bit about why autonomy is important when you're building a product? I think for autonomy to be really powerful for teams, the organization has to be supportive of the risks that the product takes. I think many times stakeholders will have great feature ideas, right? In an organization where risk is not tolerated, product managers are likely to take these features and, and go with them just because they're dictated by, by their seniors. But when risk is tolerated, you're much more likely to say, okay, I will explore that, but ultimately I'm just going to have a very structured open discovery process and understand, is this really what my users need right now? Or would my product actually have a much bigger impact if I uh, focused on, on something else? So I think the best thing about uh, QB Labs is that uh, our leaders are, are really uh, risk tolerant and understand that you need that uh, to give autonomy. And I think that's a really powerful combination that usually you see mostly in startups, startups otherwise, or scale-ups, I suppose. Got you. So for anyone listening and they're, they're thinking, well, their, their stakeholders just simply aren't governing them in any way, but how are we governed? What does, how do they measure success if it's not by asking us to build specific features and then seeing whether we've done that or not? What is it that we're governed by in terms of success on our products? We're very much governed and we're, we're governed in many different ways, actually, but probably the most tangible systematic way is by OKRs. We usually set OKRs on a half-year basis. But we update leaders either weekly or biweekly or, or monthly, depending who, who, who leaders are, on how we're achieving those OKRs. And if you're achieving those OKRs, which everyone has agreed on and, and bought in, then you're surely doing a great job, even if you didn't create that one feature that one stakeholder wanted. Got you. And what is an OKR? Uh, objective and key result. <laughs> okay. So we're, we're governed by outcomes, yes. whether we've hit these measurable objectives or not. Yes. Okay. Uh, rather than by what features we might have been asked to build by our stakeholders. Yes. And what's, what's one of the measurable outcomes or key results that BRICS are currently heading towards? So if you, if you remember, I mentioned earlier that we wanted to make sure that BRICS is better than all the existing tools around, around three areas. One was discovery. The second one was consumption and the third one was contribution. So our OKRs are very much aligned aligned with those. In essence, when you think about consumption, we have specific metrics around uh, around downloads, uh, we have specific metrics on on ratings, for example, how much time did the specific post save on average for users? When you think about consumption, this would translate into into new posts. We also have mini operating teams actually that that create that create reusable assets, and we want to share between those as well. So we have measurable outcomes around how many assets are actually they using when they when they contribute contribute back. So how many of their their components are basically shared as well. On the on the discovery side, you would usually look at top line metrics such as uh, such as monthly active users, but also number of monthly engagements uh, with the app. Per user, so is a user coming, then clicking on a post, contributing, downloading, all these sort of things to get the sense of the strength of their interaction with the tool. So, so basically, to summarize, after after all that, autonomy autonomy is really important as long as 
risk tolerance is there by the management team. And that risk tolerance obviously does not come with complete and uh, kind of unsituated trust, but it comes by governance, by measurable outcomes. Fantastic. So for anyone listening that's interested in the discipline of product management, what would you suggest they go and read, go do? You know, what, what, What's a way for them to upskill as a product manager? So product management is something that is not really taught at universities yet, even though it's becoming a really, really important profession in my view. And because of that, most of the product managers, at least my age, will have learned everything by, by doing and by making mistakes. But I think what's probably best is to actually read up on people's past mistakes and things that have worked for them. So one of the, one of the great reading lists that I have come across is the one by Ken Norton. And he has there some of the books that you absolutely should read if you want to have a career in product management. I would start, obviously, with Inspired by Marty Kagan, Empowered. You have things like Creativity Inc., which is about Pixar. The Innovator's Dilemma, The Innovator's Solution, Hooked. Many of those books that you have heard of, but I think they're really, really core. One of them as well is, I think, High Output Management, which was the predecessor of OKRs. It kind of came about in Intel before it became a thing at Google. And then a thing for the whole world. If you went through the books in that list, you'd get actually a really well-rounded perspective around many of the problems and solutions existing in, in product management. And right now I'm reading actually the hard thing about hard things by um, Ben Horowitz. Fantastic. What an amazing reference. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Virginia. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me, James. You've been listening to a podcast created by Quantum Black, a McKinsey company. This episode was produced by Tillman Becker and Catherine Shenton and edited by Clementine Rettig and myself, James Mulligan. If you'd like to learn more about Quantum Black, head to www.quantumblack.com.